MSW Media. I argue in the book that this movement, this anti-tax movement, is the most important overlooked social and political movement of the last half century. Prevail. Welcome back to the fight. This time I know our side will win. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash Greg today to get 10% off your first month. If you enjoy the Prevail podcast, please follow, download, review, and share it with your friends. Prevail, my column at Substack, has new content three times a week. I've been doing this since November of 2019, so there's a lot of good stuff in the archives. A lot about Russia coming up this week. Every piece at Prevail is free to read and always will be. No paywalls ever. Your generous support keeps it that way. A subscription is just $6 a month, $55 a year. Visit gregoliar.substack.com to learn more. We've got a great show. Michael Gratz is here. Michael is a leading expert in tax and international tax law. He's a professor emeritus at Columbia Law School. Before that, he taught at Yale Law School for 25 years. And before that, he worked in the Treasury Department. He's the author of The Wolf at the Door, The Menace of Economic Insecurity and How to Fight It with Ian Shapiro, and with Linda Greenhouse of The New York Times, The Burger Court and the Rise of the Judicial Right. His new book, which came out last week, is called The Power to Destroy, How the Anti-Tax Movement Hijacked America. And this book totally changed the way that I view this topic, which, you know, frankly, before I didn't really think about it all that much other than, you know, we have to pay taxes. They're going to, some will be allocated here, some will be allocated there. As he writes in the introduction in the first chapter of his book, Quote, the modern anti-tax movement is the most overlooked social and political movement in recent American history. It has impeded the nation's ability to protect its people from the vicissitudes of life, produced massive public debt, and contributed to the country's exceptional inequality, unquote. So this book, this study by Michael Gratz, to me, it's like almost a companion piece to um, Evil Geniuses, the Kurt Anderson book. As you know, I'm a huge Kurt Anderson fan. Um, as Evil Geniuses sort of tells the story of how the right captured the court, Michael's book, Power to Destroy, tells the story of how the anti-tax right wing did the same thing with tax policy and what that means, You know how political tax policy really is in terms of you know, if we choose to spend here, we're not choosing to spend somewhere else. If we're choosing to collect a percentage from this group of people and not that group of people, I never really thought about taxes being political, like I said, in this way, where the decision on whom to tax, how much to tax, where the tax revenue goes, which programs it funds, which ones it starves, 
all of this is important and it speaks to what a society values. It speaks to who has power in the society. And it's much more of a big deal than I thought. So this is a fantastic book. I really urge everybody to read it. You know, again, he's an academic. He's been a professor for a long time. The book is not written in that way. And it's filled with these sort of colorful characters. Um, the the anti-tax crew is, uh, they're a bunch of weirdos. I can say it. He couldn't say it. I'm going to say it. It's a bunch of weirdos. And these weirdos, just like with the courts, just like with Leonard Leo, it's a bunch of weirdos who have come in and somehow through sheer force of will and determination and the fact that their weirdo views are liked very much by extremely rich people um, have managed to foist their political policies onto an entire country. So this is a really important book. I urge everybody to read it. Go buy it and read it. I mentioned the colorful characters. Grover Norquist is one. I remember Grover Norquist from the day. He's the guy that did the pledge. You know, he's got this sort of distinguished beard, and he had that even before beards were kind of in style. Um, he's a Harvard guy. And I remember thinking, what a weird thing to, to dedicate your life to making sure that super rich people don't pay their fair share of taxes. I mean, who does that? It's so strange. Arthur Laffer, who developed the Laffer curve, he's another one, kind of a kook uh, that Reagan glommed onto. Because again, these politicians, all they need is one person who's vaguely sounds like he knows what he's talking about to, to jump onto, uh, to get what they want and, and, and push policies forward that they want, right? And I didn't realize, we'll talk about this in the interview, that Ann Rand and Alan Greenspan were like friends. I knew Alan Greenspan liked Ann Rand. I didn't know that he liked Ann Rand in the sense of they had dinner parties. Very strange. So I enjoyed this conversation a lot. Um, I learned a lot, and you will too. And I, I'll, I'll say again to stress, I understand the idea of taxes is not <laughs> – let's put it this way. When you're going to sell something, the three-letter word that ends in X that you would use to market it is not tax, right? But it's a fantastic book, and it's a really important, interesting subject that I think you know people should learn more about. We'll bring that to you in a moment. I don't have that much to say up front other than, hey, what do you know? The Russians gave dirt to the GOP to hurt the Dems and wound up being BS. Wow, I've never seen that before. I don't know when people are going to wake up with this, that Russia has been doing this to us for a long time now with dire, dire effect on our life here in the United States. Our democracy is at risk because of their fuckery, right? And they're still at it. They're still at it. This guy, Comer and, and Jim Jordan, who, if you look at these guys, just look at them. You can tell they're bad dudes. They just radiates off them. If we were to make a movie about this and cast two corrupt weirdo house guys who are being manipulated by Russians, probably because they have weird shit going on in the background, I don't think you could find two better people to play the parts than these two guys. And what did they do? They made a federal case out of this. For months and months and months, trying to attack Joe through his son, Hunter, who was an addict and had problems and who Joe was trying to help um, and make it seem like there's some Biden crime family, which I don't understand how people even entertain that thought. Like Joe Biden is a lot of things. You can be critical about his personality in a lot of ways, but he's not like a lavish guy. You know, he's not the one that shits on the gold toilet. 
I don't understand why people think Joe is corrupt. He seems not corrupt to me. He just he takes the train to Delaware. He sits on the beach in Delaware. He's not doing anything. Where's he spending all this money and why? Just nothing about it resonates with his personality. It doesn't gel at all. So I don't know. But people will believe anything, I guess. If it's really well-crafted Russian propaganda, I guess they'll just believe it. If it's repeated ad nauseum by two extremely corrupt, possibly compromised House representatives and then run 24-7 on Fox News and Newsmax and OAN and so on and so forth. You know, people believe anything, I suppose. They'll believe anything. They'll believe if they're told that if we cut taxes on the rich, some of the tax savings that the rich people get will somehow, through some sort of osmosis, work their way down to the poor and the middle class. And they named this idea trickle down. They called it trickle down, which is something that P does. And the American people just ate it right up, ate it right up for years and years, even though it doesn't work. It never worked. Even in theory, it doesn't work very well. Uh, George H.W. Bush knew it was BS. He called it voodoo economics in that debate with Reagan in the 1980 primaries. Voodoo economics, meaning it's just, you know, smoke and mirrors, doesn't work. And yet, that's been our tax policy for a long, long time, and it ain't good economically. The country is not in good financial health, and the reason why is because the damn Republicans and because of the tax positions that the Republicans have. And that's not fair, and, and, and Michael makes this point too. Democrats also, you know, as he puts it, co-conspirators with this. It's not just the Republicans who did this. The Democrats teamed up with them. They let these laws pass. They went right on along for whatever reason. So um, this is bad stuff. It's dangerous stuff. And it's something people aren't really talking about in a serious way. So uh, again, his book is called The Power to Destroy, How the Anti-Tax Movement Hijacked America. We'll be right back with Michael Gratz. Are you having trouble remembering what you were doing on January 6th? Do you regularly confuse Barack Obama with Joe Biden? Or Nikki Haley with Nancy Pelosi? Or one of your rape victims with one of your wives? Hi, I'm Ivanka Trump. I used to be forgetful too. I don't think anyone pleaded the fifth more than me. Heck. I was like Clementine from Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, but taller and with better hair. Then Jared told me to try Nemagamonic, a remarkable new memory aid product. Nemagamonic is a Chinese patented herbal remedy, a proprietary blend of ivermectin, provigil, orange hair dye, and cordyceps mushrooms harvested from the Chernobyl exclusion zone. Having trouble remembering your passwords? No more. After using Nemagamonic for just one week, you'll be able to easily recall PIN codes, Swiss bank account numbers, and word strings like person, woman, man, camera, TV. After just four weeks, you'll understand how NATO works. Turn your forget-me-not to forget-me-not with Nemagamonic. Remember, try it today. And now, back to the show. 
Michael Gratz, welcome to Prevail. Thank you, Greg. Pleasure to be here. I'm excited to have you on. You've written a new book called The Power to Destroy, How the Anti-Tax Movement Hijacked America. Um, now, at first blush, people might listen and might be like, oh, wow, it's a book about taxes. But it's it, I thought it was super interesting um, because not only is it relevant to what's happening now and I think critical to understanding what's happening now, but you really do go through the whole uh, survey of time and, and and write it in such a way that that uh, nor, normal, not academic people, I think, can, can get a lot out of it. So it's it, it's an excellent book. So first of all, congratulations on that. Well, thank you for that. I'm glad you enjoyed reading it. Now, you've spent your professional life studying, teaching, writing about tax law, international tax law, health policy, uh, and most recently, uh, economic insecurity. You've taught at Columbia Law, Yale Law, UVA Law. So what prompted you to write this book at this point in your career and at this point in the history of the United States? So it's interesting. I had lived through this period of time. Um, and it was something that I really thought more people understood than I now know. Um, and I was actually having lunch with my agent. And she said, you know, the next book you should write should be about the anti-tax movement. And she convinced me that was the right answer. <laughs> and I thought it was I thought it was really in my wheelhouse for the reasons you just described. Uh, but it turns out that I really learned a lot while I was while I was writing it. I, I did a lot of research, much more than I had really expected I'd have to do. Um, but I really learned a lot of, uh, of vignettes and uh, and a lot about the people that brought the movement to life and made it what it is uh, today and what it has been for the last half century. The vignettes are great. The, the Grover Norquist uh, bio snippets were particularly fascinating because I always wonder, like, what? why is this guy so like crazy about this? And then, OK, yeah, his childhood is so weird. It sort of explains it. Do you, have you ever met him, by the way? Oh, yes. I had a debate with him uh, moderated by Harry Evans, you know, who is a great rock on tour up in the 21 uh, uh, restaurant in New York. Um and and he's a he's a very interesting character, uh, but he's really obsessed with this anti-tax movement. And his pledge, as you know, has been really central uh, since the mid '80s to uh, uh, keeping Republicans, in particular, in line. And he's had much more impact uh, in the states, uh, getting uh, governors and state legislators to sign his no tax pledge. Uh, than um, most people would um, imagine. Yeah, no, he's, I mean, even I, I, I've known who he was for a long time as sort of this almost curious villain, because it's, who dedicates their life to that? It's it's such a, such a strange thing. Like, I feel like rich people aren't paying, or, or, you know, they need to pay less in taxes, and I'm going to dedicate my life to this. It <laughs> seems weird to me, but that's, I don't know, that's just me. Well, you know, um, Arianna Huffington <laughs> called him the uh, Voldemort of a, uh, <laughs> of American politics, so she, she shares your view. Yeah, I think it's I think it's accurate. Um, a, a quick writing question: So, you, you your last two books, which are Wolf at the Door uh, and The Burger Court and The Rise of the Right, uh, were co-written with Ian Shapiro and Linda Greenhouse, respectively. And this one isn't. This one you did on your own. So, I, I'm wondering, just in a writerly way, how was that for you? The process was it more liberating or well it, harder? It's different. Um, I, I, it's not the first book I've written myself. 
Um, I've written some earlier books uh, on tax on tax policy, particularly myself. And I'd written an earlier book with Ian Shapiro, who's a political scientist at Yale, on uh, the politics of the estate tax in particular. And so he and I, and he and I had talked together for years. Uh, Linda and I had uh, conversations about the Burger Court, and uh, we concluded that the story of the Burger Court was just wrong. <laughs> the idea was that there was the Warren Court, and then there was the Rehnquist Court, and the Burger Court had been overlooked. It was much like the view of the 70s um, until recently when the historians have actually made it a real topic which was it was a decade with nothing happened. There was the 60s and then there was Ronald Reagan in the 80s. And so um, this was just a mistake. And the Burger Court was very important. And Linda, of course, is, you know, she wrote about the court for years during that period, uh, even for the New York Times. And, and, and she and I are good friends and Ian and I are good friends. But it's very different and, and much more isolated when you're sitting uh, writing yourself, as you can imagine. That's all I do. I can't, it'd be hard for me to imagine writing a book with someone else. I have the opposite, uh, I have the opposite thing. So um, from your book, and, and this is something I, I hadn't really thought about, because for me, I'm like, okay, well, there's, you know, taxes just means, you know, paying for the public good. It means services. You're paying into something for services. And that's sort of, in a very simplified way, how I think about it. Um, so something that I took away from the book that made me see it in a different way. Um, th this is a quote here. Uh, the tax law is laden with fundamental cultural, social, economic, and political judgments. And I never really thought about it that, that way before. Um, so talk a little bit about what did you mean by that? Well, I, I meant a number of things. I mean, one is, of course, the U.S. is really unique in relying on the tax system as a delivery system for social um, protections and social benefits. So the health insurance for people who are not retired or poor is provided through incentives through the tax system for employers to provide health insurance, unique, I think, around the world. Um, you know, the home mortgage deduction and the property tax deduction that exists uh, has stimulated home ownership uh, in America, which is um, often referred to uh, by my students, as, as well as others, as the American dream, which is something of a mystery to me, but that's their dream. And uh, and it's, so it's it's laden with social judgments. I I often say to my to my young students that the Congress has used the tax system the way my mother used chicken soup as a remedy for any ailment that might strike you <laughs> at any moment. And, you know, we've seen it now with the child tax credit. Uh, you know, the earned income tax credit is the most important uh, wage subsidy in, in the United States for low-income uh, people with children. So that's very common. The other thing I meant by it, which I really, really focused on in this book, as you know, is is the role of, of race uh, and xenophobia in the anti-tax movement, uh, how really the transformation of of the makeup of California schools in the late 1970s due to immigration from south of the border uh, and the African-American population and, and others leaving the schools uh, really changed um, the way people thought about property taxes. Instead of paying for their own children's schools, they were paying for somebody else's children's schools. And 
a lot of the leaders of the anti-tax movement really um, used racist tropes uh, as a way of uh, attracting people to it. And, and the idea there is that, you know, you're no longer paying for your own services, you're paying for somebody else's services. Howard Jarvis, who was the moving force in California for Proposition 13, uh, kept talking about welfare, 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 paying for the others, um, you know, paying for people who were not working, uh, demonizing people uh, of different races and, and immigrants. And that has continued, actually, uh, you know, certainly uh, highlighted in the, in the Obama administration has continued uh, certainly till today. And Ray, I mean, Reagan did that, too. Obviously, you write about that as well with the, you know, his myth, mytholo- mythological uh, welfare queen, uh, who probably would be so rich that she wouldn't need to pay any taxes anyway. <laughs> so much money. She, you know, exactly. uh, that but that was a big I remember that being a big deal at the time like that. It, it oh, you know, oh, yeah. uh, he repeated it regularly. Yeah, it was a big thing and, and probably was, you know, at least somewhat responsible for him. Um taking office. Another thing that I, that I took away from the book um, is the way that really the history of the United States is the history of taxation in a lot of ways. I hadn't really thought about that before either. Like, you know, the, the Tea Party is the first, the, the actual Tea Party, not this political group now. Uh, the Boston Tea Party was, you know, the first big uh, revolutionary movement. And what is that about? It's about, you know, the taxation on tea uh, that they didn't want to pay and it's more complicated than that, but that's it's it's, it's tax related, um, and that leads to the you know the Declaration of Independence, which is no taxation without representation, all that kind of stuff, and it it continues through the the Whiskey Rebellion, which you write about. And two weeks ago, I was looking into the uh, when Greg Abbott was talking about you know doing the thing in Texas where he he wanted to unfederalize it and basically nullify. I went back and looked at the Andrew Jackson speech that he gave in 1832. And, you know, why was he giving the speech? Why did South Carolina want to not do it? Because it's tax related. It was the tariff of abominations, they called it. So all throughout history, there's been this sense of, of, um, you know, you can't get too far away from uh, from the history of it. And I don't think people realize and I didn't realize until fairly recently how relatively recent the income tax idea is that it's really kind of a, a recent occurrence and that before you know 1913 or whatever it was the, the US government had to make money from other sources well Alexander Hamilton um, you know decided he had to tax whiskey because before that the government had been completely funded by tariffs and it was really his way of insisting that the taxing power, which came into the Constitution, it was it was not in the in the Articles of Confederation for the federal government to impose domestic taxes, and he really felt like he had to assert the federal government's power by taxing domestic production of whiskey, which led to the Whiskey Rebellion. So it's it's really uh, central to not only the formation of the government, but also the continuation of the government. That is, it's very hard to run a government without imposing taxes. And and right. you're certainly right that the uh, income tax uh, came into the into the uh, United States and really into existence as a 20th century idea, coupled with prohibition because they had to. I read a book about this once where they had to 
to to replace the income from the excise tax on alcohol, they had to figure out another way to draw in revenue. And that's what they came up with. So the two of them were sort of paired. That's, you know, which is interesting. Why would anybody think that necessarily? And the suffragettes who wanted it to happen. So all three things kind of working in tandem to uh, make sure that we can't drink whiskey anymore and you know, for a couple of years coming back from the First World War. Um, one character that all of these libertarian people seem to have in common is that their love for Ayn Rand. Um, I read Atlas Shrugged when I was like a freshman in college. And I know it's, it's supposed to, it's, it's like a YA novel. It's supposed to be a young adult novel. And the idea of it, which is that all the, all the like good people go on strike. And then there's the secret society where they tap all the good people. But the, the fallacy there is that there's always has to be somebody that does the tapping. Um, and, and why would anybody be tapped? It's, it's, it, it doesn't make any sense intellectually to me. Like it seems very silly. So what, why is she so popular with these people? What is it about Anne Rand? Well, she was popular, you know, she, she her novels were, were extremely popular. Uh, they continue to sell, um, almost a million books a year, or at least they did until very recently. Um, and, and as you say, and, and as I noticed, many of the people in the, um, anti-tax movement uh, were uh, Randian uh, advocates and, and took her view of freedom. Alan Greenspan was not only uh, um, an, an advocate, he became a very close friend and had lots of philosophical discussions with her. And she wrote uh, about her philosophy. And, you know, the, the odd thing about this Randian element of the anti-tax movement is that it is a very odd concept of freedom. It is an idea that in order to be free, you should not contribute to the government, yeah. that it's all entrepreneurs and capitalism, as if the government doesn't set the rules and provide the courts and, and provide the, the law, the rule of law that allows uh, capitalism to flourish that's just you know a sideshow to to the to the randian philosophy and so it's a very cramped view of freedom it was shared actually in uh, the late 1970s by a harvard philosopher robert nozick who i also mentioned in the book mm -hmm. uh, who basically argued that you know having your uh, labor income tax was the same as slavery which I think yeah. uh, both overstates the power of taxation and understates the deprivations of slavery. Um, but he was writing in response to uh, John Rawls, who argued for uh, redistributive policies to help the least advantaged in the society. And they were competitors in the Harvard philosophy department. And his book was one of the really important philosophy books of, of this period that I'm writing about. So uh, so it wasn't just Rand, but she was the one who reached the politicians. Um, yeah. she, she reached the people who played the role in moving the anti-tax forward, anti-tax movement forward in a way that, that it became uh, what it has become over this last half century. I didn't realize that, that she and Greenspan were friends. I learned that from the book, too. I, I just I don't know why it wouldn't occur to me that that would happen. But well, it, uh, it, yeah. it wasn't an obvious friendship, I have to say. <laughs> uh, but it certainly uh, it certainly was a was a deep and abiding friendship.
Um, getting back to what you're saying about, you know, taxation as slavery, I, I, somebody followed me on Twitter who had a, a, a shirt on that said taxation is theft and I, I couldn't hit the block button fast enough. Um, this, this idea of libertarian to me is so, you know, we're going to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and we, everybody has to be for themselves and resourceful. It seems like that's impossible that every single person benefits from some sort of government function, whether they want it, want to or not, or whether they're utilizing the service or not. You know, uh, the onion years ago destroyed the whole idea of it by, you know, the, the, the guy libertarian calls, you know, for the fire department uh, to come put out the fire. There are certain level of services that we all kind of want. So what you were saying about the cramped, you know, idea of freedom, has there ever been a, a successful libertarian state? Because it seems to me that no is the answer. Well, I certainly couldn't identify one. Um, you know, when you think about the developed world, uh, you know, you think about Europe, you think about Japan, uh, you may be thinking now about China's movements, but they're certainly not libertarian in any sense of the word. Yeah. And, uh, and certainly the United States has not been libertarian. I, when I describe the federal government, I, I often describe it as a, as a military uh, coupled with an insurance uh, department. You know, it's basically spending most of its money on, on health insurance and retirement insurance and, and social security and Medicare and Medicaid and, uh, and on defense. Uh, although now uh, we're now facing a situation where uh, interest on the federal debt has for the first time exceeded defense spending and uh, matched uh, Medicare spending. So we're now uh, we're now paying for the profligacy and the refusal to pay for uh, spending uh, over a long period of time, particularly in the 21st century. I was going to ask about that later, but I'll ask about You're it. You're going to ask about it's it. Interesting. Whenever, whenever yeah. you wish. Uh, no, no. I'm, I think we'll go right right now into the deficit because. You know, this is a, one of the GOP's favorite talking points. Whenever something happens that we have to spend money on, some jerk like Rand Paul goes up there and starts bitching about the deficit. And, you know, in, in a sense, I the idea of a balanced budget, I think people equate it with, you know, our own credit cards. We got to pay off our credit card before we go. But that's not the United States. Treasury is not the a personal credit card system because I I don't create dollars out of out of air uh, for myself and the the world you know currency is not pegged to the dollar so it's not exactly the same thing um, obviously there, there's some there's some level though where too much deficit and too much money going to debt service can start a catastrophic fall. And then we, uh, you know, we, we wind up in a very bad place, but what, what, where is that place? Like, are we close to it? What, what's your take on all of that? Well, that's a, it's a really important question. So I, I really want to answer it in two ways. Uh, one is that Ronald Reagan was famous for insisting that if the family has to balance the budget, then the federal government should balance the budget. And at the same time, Ronald Reagan when he came into office, the federal debt was less than a trillion dollars. And when he left office, it was three times as much. It was $2.7 trillion. He accumulated more debt during his presidency than had been accumulated in the entire history of the nation up until 1981. All the while talking about balancing the budget and arguing for a constitutional amendment to balance the budget as if 
that made any sense uh, for the federal government. And he did it through a combination of insisting, as, as you will remember, on uh, raising defense spending to defeat the Soviet Union, combined with huge tax cuts, which he enacted in 1981. And although there were tax increases after that, and there was a period from 1982 until the late 1990s when Clinton was president, when deficits were in the forefront of the American political uh, scheme, uh, Ronald Reagan's vice president, just to do a little history before we get to the moment we are in now. No, no, good. Um, yeah. Ronald Reagan's vice president, George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, promised uh, to re read my lips, no new taxes. And then he broke that pledge. It, it, you know, in my view, I, I was actually working uh, for the Treasury at the time. In my view, he properly broke it because he needed to address the deficits and the debt at the time, uh, but it, you know, it, it certainly triggered uh, Pat Buchanan's entry uh, into challenging him for the nomination, and uh, some people credit it with uh, with his defeat. Uh, Newt Gingrich really became Speaker of the House by attacking Bush uh, on his tax cuts, along with attacking Democrats, which Gingrich became famous for. Uh, so there was this period before uh, George W. Bush came into office. We had eliminated deficits. We had a surplus for the first time since the late 1960s in 2000. And Alan Greenspan went to uh, Congress in 2001, and he said that the surpluses that we were going to have were going to be so great that the federal government would pay off all of its federal debt and it would have to invest in corporate stock, uh, an idea that uh, Greenspan aboard. And so uh, he uh, was very important in convincing the uh, Congress in 2001 to enact a very large tax cut under the Bush uh, presidency. And then just to, just to give you a quick overview, Bush then... Uh, engaged in a $6 trillion war on terror, right. the first uh, war that America has failed to pay for in its history. Uh, he then enacted a prescription drug benefit, which was the first new entitlement uh, that had been uh, enacted without any uh, pay for. And then, as you know, we had the financial crisis. We had the pandemic. Uh, spending went up. Tax cuts continued. Um, in 2003, in 2010, and 2012, Obama extended and made permanent all of the tax cuts except for those on people above $400,000 of income. I understood uh, why he did it in 2010 when the economy was just beginning to come out of the, out of the Great Recession. Uh, I do not understand why he did it in 2012 and 2013. He had the power. To, uh, to really change the course of American history on this uh, topic, uh, but he did not use it for uh, whatever reasons he had. Um, and then, of course, we've seen um, the Trump tax cuts since then. So where are we today? That's your, your question. And, and today we have the highest level of federal debt as a share of the economy that we've had since the end of the Second World War. 
But at the end of the Second World War, the United States had all the money there was. Europe was a shambles. Uh, Japan was was a shambles. China was entering into a dark communist period. Russia was was trying to rebuild from the war and was interested only in defense, not in helping its people. And and we entered into a period of, of prosperity and widely distributed economic growth that's sort of unprecedented. But at that time, the debt was 106% of the economy, of GDP. 95% of that debt, the post-war debt, was owed to Americans. So Americans had bought all of the all of the debt during the war, essentially. Today, the debt is now at 100% of GDP. It's the highest it's been since then, and it's going up dramatically uh, over the next number of years. Um, interest rates, according to a forecast of, of the Congressional Budget Office this week, are going to be 3.3% of GDP this year and next year and 2025. That's greater than the rate of economic growth. So what that tells you is that every dollar that the U.S. accumulates through economic growth over the next several years will be going to pay interest on the federal debt. And 35 cents, roughly 30 to 35 cents of every dollar of those interest costs is going abroad, much of it to countries that we don't consider close friends, uh, including uh, China, uh, which, uh, yeah. uh, which, which holds a lot of uh, debt. I think Japan is still number one, but China, I think, is number two. So we're now in a position, as I said, where interest has become the fastest growing expenditure of the federal government. And uh, all of the projections going out are that uh, we're going to be spending... 23% roughly of uh, GDP at the federal level. And the estimates are that we're going to raise 17% in taxes, which is a, is a low uh, over, over time. And in 2025, just to finish this, this longer yeah. view, in 2025, $6 trillion of Trump tax cuts expire. There's a $3 trillion sort of offset of tax increases that also expire. So there's a net of $3.5 trillion, and that's a 10-year number. It's more as you go further out. But another $3.5 trillion of tax cuts are coming up for Congress in 2025. And um, CBO, under the law, is required, the Congressional Budget Office, under the law, is required to assume that if the law says they expire, they'll expire. Well, you know, if you believe that, you'll never own your own home. I mean, they're not going to expire. <laughs> they're going to be extended, most of them. Maybe there'll be some pay-fors here or there. I hope so. Uh, but I think that we're in a more precarious financial situation than we've ever been in. And we've got a global economy uh, with real competitors. Uh, we no longer have all the money there was. Um, and I think it's unsustainable. Uh, the The big question, and then I'll stop. The big question is, um, you know, Herbert Stein was Richard Nixon's chief economist, uh, a very well-known economist. And in 
the 1980s when deficits were in the forefront, he told Congress uh, what became Stein's Law, which is if something cannot go on, it will stop. And, <laughs> and the question is, how will this stop? And um, I hate to say this, but my book does not have an answer to this question. I do not know how it's going to stop. Well, after the war, and and um, you know, thank you for that that answer. We like long answers on this podcast, so don't don't worry about that. Uh, this isn't some short segment on on some TV show. Uh, my my listeners like this kind of thing, as do I. Um, after the war, they, the the um, top marginal tax rate was what ninety seven percent or something like 91, that. Ninety one, most of the time. Yeah, it hit ninety two, and then. And was like that for years um, in a period of time that was the most productive in the history of the country economically. So um, now the, the top marginal tax rate is it, it ain't 91 percent. It's a lot lower. So that that's, seems to be kind of an obvious solution. But do you think they're ever going to do that or will they just say, you know, we won't pay China? Well, let's <laughs> let's see how we got here. Um, so in. And in, in Reagan's. Uh, period as a B movie actor, um, he made, uh, as he said, he repeated this over and over again. He made only three movies a year because that fourth movie that they asked him to make just wasn't worth making at ninety one percent. When he came into office in in nineteen eighty one, the top rate on dividends and interest on investment income. I'm not talking about labor income because that was fifty percent but on investment income was 70%. When he left office, it was 28%. Now it's crept back up. It's it's 37% on interest, but it's still only 23% on uh, dividends and capital gains. So the, the tax rate on income from capital, income from wealth is lower uh, you know, it, it's been a little lower than this, but it's but it's very very low. Um, the tax rate on labor has gone up because the payroll tax that finances Medicare and Social Security has gone up, and so payroll taxes are now the highest taxes that are paid by seventy five to eighty percent of the American people, and those taxes went up taxes on wealth and capital, the estate tax, uh, which is a tax on wealth transmitted uh, down generations uh, by uh, bequest, uh, has gone way down. And so the tax system has gotten itself uh, pretty much out of kilter in some way, and it's inadequate. But it's it's worth noting that while the book is mostly about the Republican anti-tax movement, because it became I, I describe it in the book, as you know, Greg, I describe it as the linchpin that held the various pieces of the Republican coalition together. It was something that everybody agreed on, the social conservatives, the Christian evangelicals, the business community, and so forth. They could all agree on reducing taxes. But the Democrats have been uh, co-conspirators in this, yeah. and they have been co-conspirators uh, from the beginning, uh, they held the Congress, they held the House of Representatives from 1954 to 1994 elections. And uh, they went along with the 1981 tax cuts uh, for reasons I describe in the book. Uh, they uh, 
Bill Bradley, a, a liberal Democrat from New Jersey um, and a famous basketball uh, star, really was instrumental as a Democratic uh, leader in getting the tax rates down in the 86 Act to this top rate of, of 28%. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, Obama uh, was responsible for extending all of the uh, George W. Bush tax cuts in, in uh, 2010 and 2000, end of 2012. And so the Democrats have been co-conspirators. And when Joe Biden came into office, he uh, endeavored to increase tax rates at the top uh, to create some loophole closers, if you will, uh, for things like carried interest, which are taxed as capital gains, which are really management fees for private equity and hedge fund folks, uh, to tax uh, people who borrow money and spend it against their stock, which is appreciated in value instead of selling the stock and paying taxes and to close a whole series of, of tax avoidance measures, well-known tax avoidance measures in the estate tax. And he had a Democratic Congress in 2022, and he couldn't do any of it. All he could do was put a little excise tax on stock buybacks and add another minimum tax on large corporations. And none of the rest of it passed. Now, you know, in fairness to Biden, he had to deal with Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin in the Senate, yeah. but uh, but he had a but it was all Democrats and and the estate tax avoidance anti avoidance rules were in the House Ways and Means Committee bill, and by the time it got to the House floor, they disappeared, and those were Democrats who made it disappear, and so you know this this anti tax movement is is a. <laughs> is a malady that seems to have uh, infected uh, both parties. And the way I now come to summarize it after writing this book is that the Republicans don't want to tax anyone and the Democrats don't want to tax 98% of anyone. And, and I think that's where we are. And yeah, you can't run a government that way. This is, it sounds to me like, you know, both parties are the, the kid running for school president who promises the, the soda machine in the, in the cafeteria. And, you know, somebody's got to pay for the soda at, at some point. Soda's not free. It just isn't. I love the analogy. I hadn't thought of it that way. <laughs> but it is, and it does have the same, uh, the same uh, fiscal responsibility as a high school election. <laughs> that that we know. I, I I do feel that that George W. Bush takes a lot of the blame here because the when nine eleven happened, that was a moment when he could have been responsible and people would have willingly paid more in taxes without question to finance the war because that we were all in it together. And instead, he basically put the entire war on uh, on American Express and uh, and lower taxes at the same time, which is just a, it's to me just a catastrophic math error. Um, I'm not great at math, but that seems like a bad idea. If you have two huge costs and nothing at all to offset it, it seems like a recipe for disaster. Well, absolutely. 9-11. But, you know, it was interesting because the big tax cuts in 2001 were enacted in May of 2001 before 9-11. After 9-11, he certainly could have gone to the American public and said, we need to pay for this war on terror. But he refused yeah. to do so. And in 2003, 
he urged more tax cuts and passed more tax cuts. Um, you know, the, the chapter in the book on George W. Bush is entitled, The Apple Sometimes Falls Far From the Tree. And <laughs> I think there was a, a, a connection between his father's uh, fiscal responsibility and the son's fiscal irresponsibility. But I'm not a psychiatrist, so I'm not <laughs> confident of that. I read a really good book about about sort of analyzing that one time with the, with the idea that all of the people that W was surrounding with were all older than him and kind of friends with his dad. And he couldn't early on. He was just under their sway, like Cheney and Rumsfeld and those guys. And by the second term, he had kind of found his footing a little bit and was more of his own his own kind of person. But, it, you know, it makes sense. If it's like some guy that you've you've known your whole life is there and telling you what to do, you're probably going to listen to him well, Dick more Cheney, so than, you know, somebody else. Dick yeah. Cheney, his vice president, famously told him when the secretary of the Treasury said in 2003, we can't have more tax cuts. We need to become physically, physically responsible. Um, Cheney said uh, Ronald Reagan proved deficits don't matter, which, of course, is not what Ronald Reagan proved. <laughs> And yeah. uh, and Cheney essentially convinced George W. Bush to fire the Secretary of the Treasury and put in somebody who would be more amenable in 2003. So uh, Cheney was a very big influence at the time. And, and I think you're absolutely right about that, Greg. Then you say something like, this is our due. You know, it's like we won. We're, t we're cutting the damn taxes. Exactly. So I, I'm way late for this. We're going to have to take a quick break. Uh, we'll be right back with Michael Gratz. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp Therapy Online. For 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com slash Greg. You know, a common misconception about relationships is that they have to be easy to be right. Therapy can be a place to work through the challenges you face in all of your relationships, whether with friends, work, your significant other, anyone. I mean, we live in a world now where a lot of our social interactions take place online, which is strange, right? Because for thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, human beings have been on this earth. There's not been <laughs> Facebook or Twitter, you know, for all this time. And now suddenly we've had to adapt to how to deal with this and stuff comes up online because you know this person, you think you know that person. It's, it's very confusing. You know, there's no template for it. We've never had this challenge in all the time that we human beings have been here. So who do you go to talk to about that? In my case, I went to BetterHelp. And it helped me a lot. It really helped me get through a hard time in my life. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. One of the nice things, it's entirely online, which is great, actually, for therapy, because I feel like sometimes there's an awkwardness in going somewhere, and you have to go find somebody, and you have to talk to them. It just takes a long time to get therapy going. Um, it's hard to find a good therapist. So with BetterHelp, you don't have to wait nearly as long. You fill out a brief questionnaire. You get matched up with a licensed therapist. You can switch if you need to, but you're you're going pretty quickly. And when you're out looking for a therapist, it's usually because you need a therapist. You want to talk to somebody, you know, sooner rather than later. So that's that's a great benefit of BetterHelp. It's flexible. It's convenient. It's suited to your schedule. I used to do my um, my sessions in my car on my phone, like at lunch hour, and it worked fine. It worked great, and it really helped me. It helped me get through a rough patch in my life, and um, it can help you too. So become your own soulmate, whether you're looking for one or not. Visit betterhelp.com slash Greg today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, 
H-E-L-P dot com slash Greg. Start living a better life today. Okay, we're back with Michael Gratz. I want to get back to, you mentioned Howard Jarvis, who is the sort of, I guess, uh, the pioneer of this anti-tax movement in California. And one thing interesting was his origin story, kind of, where he, he had this latex factory in the war, in the Second World War, and the government came along and confiscated the latex because they were going to use it for the war, but then they wound up not using it, and then he had to try to get it back and everything like that. And then he had another similar fight against the union, so he didn't like labor. And then he decided that he was going to be this anti-tax guy and sort of starve the beast or whatever. Um, it seems to me that a lot of these guys who are really jazzed up about this, it's from a place of personal grievance. Is that true? Does that seem to be a, a fact? I mean, I, w- you talked about the estate tax before, too, and it seems like you know, a lot of these guys, like these the Koch brothers and their ilk, most of them are second, third generation wealthy. And they're spending all of this money, like so much money, to lobby to spend less money on taxes, which seems just awful to me. But is it, do you get that sense that it's personal grievance or is it, is it intellectual? Like, what do you think? Well, it's, it's, that's a really terrific question because, and it's one that I've thought about a lot. Um, so you've got to have resources in order to be successful in, a, in an anti-tax movement and in a legislative process generally. And so it is people with money and they have a lot of self-interest in reducing taxes. And uh, as you described, Howard Jarvis uh, became really anti-government due to his latex experience. And the Koch brothers have been anti-government because they want to deregulate, you know, the coal industry, among other things. Um, And so there's there's money. There's also this uh, sort of zealous fringe element. I mean, Jarvis was not in the center of California politics, to put it mildly, until Proposition 13 in 1978. He had failed in every political endeavor, uh, running for office himself and and other uh, anti-tax efforts. Um, And and so you have these outsiders, um, and and self-interest is an important part of the story. It's interesting because Proposition 13 lowered property taxes in California at a time when housing inflation was rampant and people were living in the same houses. The elderly uh, folks in California were finding it hard to pay, increasing property taxes. The, the property tax assessors in both Northern California and Southern California, as I write, uh, had been convicted of of fraud and 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 crimes, they were they were uh, they were not good public servants. Uh, the California government was sitting on a surplus that the legislators couldn't agree on how to give back to the people, and so uh, timing was also important. Uh, but it is crucial, I think, that you have um, ideological and moral uh, argument to make. And uh, from the beginning, the the ideological arguments uh, have been grounded in uh, this notion of freedom and the anti-tax movement, the Randian philosophy that we talked about earlier. But they've also been grounded in supply side economics, which we haven't talked about. And yeah. and what happened in the 80s 
was that the 1970s were a period when you had rampant inflation and high unemployment at the same time. And Keynesian economics said that's not going to happen. It said you either get one or the other, but you don't get both. And so Keynesian economics, which says that during a period of, of stagnation, you give money to people who will spend the money, which are the poor and the middle class, um, was in, in disarray and had become uh, really no longer dominant. And it was replaced by supply-side economics. And supply-side economics says you give money to the entrepreneurs, you give money to the investors, uh, you give money to the people who save and will uh, increase the supply of goods in, in the economy. And that means that you give it to the people at or near the top. And so, uh, so you had an, an economic revolution. Now, that revolution has itself fallen into some disarray because there were two economic principles that came up during the 70s. Uh, the first was this supply side view that we associate with Arthur Laffer, another character, mm -hmm. by the way. There are some real characters in this book. Uh, there are, there are, yeah. But Arthur Laffer, you know, drew a curve in which he said, you know, if the taxes are too high, you can lower them and you can raise revenue. And and the supply siders embraced that and, and Reagan embraced it. And the claim has always been tax cuts will pay for themselves and tax cuts have never, large tax cuts have never paid for themselves. And so that one has been proven false. And then the other uh, view, which was associated largely with Milton Friedman at the time, a Nobel Prize winner, was that if you lower taxes, it's the only way to lower spending and it will starve the beast. And of course, the supply siders wanted to starve the beast by almost literally starving the people who were unproductive in the society, uh, the poor people, you know, uh, mothers with children and, and, and people who were having difficulties and so forth. So it was welfare and food stamps and housing uh, that was to be cut. Uh, but spending did not go down. Uh, the big spending items, defense and, and Medicare and Social Security, were all sacrosanct, have all been sacrosanct for the half century that we're talking about. And so that one has also been proved false. So the two economic principles of the anti-tax movement are conflicting and both false. <laughs> um, and, that, that it, it, seems not to have made any difference, I hate to say, but that's the way it is. They just don't want to pay, and they're just going to keep throwing spaghetti against the wall to see what sticks. They managed to do implement this policy, this, this supply side, and they called it trickle-down, which is what urine does onto the – right? They, they named it that – and and people bought it like this was going to work and be a good thing. Like it, in hindsight, or they try they were trolling us. I think to <laughs> to this thing. What's interesting though about this, Greg, and I really do want to emphasize this, is that I argue in the book that this movement, this anti-tax movement, is the most important, overlooked social and political movement of the last half century. Yes, and it has been successful without setbacks to the day now, as we're talking, in a way that the civil rights movement has not been successful. It's experienced lots of setbacks in voting in schools uh, and others. The women's movement has experienced 
massive setback in the abortion right. context. Um, and the LGBTQ movement is facing uh, huge uh, issues. Um, and and yet the anti-tax movement, despite all of these shortcomings that you and I have discussed, continues and continues vigorously. Um, and, you know, the IRS a week or so ago said that if it had more money to collect taxes, it collect $12 of taxes for every dollar it spends. And yet uh, the anti-IRS piece of this anti-tax movement is as vigorous today as it was when the Christian evangelicals uh, came into the Republican Party in the late 1970s. Uh, so, so this is a, a very unique, I think, uh, social and political movement that has been uh, really ignored. Um, you know, I, my family, you and my family are, are, have read my book uh, so far. It's, it's published uh, in, in a few days after we're talking. And and uh, they have been really impressed with just how important it has been as you began our conversation to the last half century of American history. And and that, I think, is really the, the lesson uh, that I hope people will take away from this book. It's yeah, I, and I, I think it's it's there. You know, it's definitely the takeaway. You know, particularly that just the, the W again. Not to bring it back to this, but spending all the trillions on the war and cutting taxes is such a. It's so irresponsible um, that it, it it's almost. Uh, you talk about this at the end about uh, repudiating the idea of repudiating the debt, the, the debt ceiling and not, you know, the, you say that, um, you know, which the Republicans are constantly trying to do. You say that it, doing that would be folly beyond imagination, which I thought was a very good way of very good phrase of, of putting it. But how do we deal with a GOP that obstructs? All they do is obstruct. They they offer no solutions to anything. It's gotten to the point where you know you can't work with that. I I I don't know where it, where we're going to go here. It's 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 scary in some ways, right? Well, I think it's scary in lots of ways. It's scary. Um, you know, we we don't need to talk about this because this is not in my wheelhouse. But it's scary in terms of foreign policy and the refusal to fund Ukraine. I think um, you know, for a few billion dollars, their their lives are the ones at stake. But we could provide them. Um, some money, uh, but it's also uh, it's also the case that at least in my lifetime, the country is more divided than it has been since the Vietnam War. And when I was a younger person and the Vietnam War was raging, I knew that there would come a moment when that war would come to an end, as wars do, and then the country I hoped would come together. I don't know how this particular division of the country and the partisanship and the gridlock and the antagonism and the really almost hatred for the other side, the despising yeah. of, of people, um, many of whom are, you know, of good faith and, and just have disagreements. I don't know how we bridge this gap. I don't, I don't know how this one ends. And it makes me very nervous for my children and grandchildren uh, um, who yeah. are who are coming into the world at, at this moment. And and I uh, I don't know how it ends, uh, but I I do know that 
I'm just to make the debt ceiling point vivid, you can't, I mean, the, the U.S. government is able to do what it does by borrowing because it has the dollar as the reserve currency of the world. And because right. the U.S. Treasury is the safe asset for the world. And so you've got a safe currency and a safe asset. And if, as the Republicans, and this is a Republican Party problem, not a Democratic problem, if the Republicans really are successful, which, you know, they keep bluffing on this debt ceiling stuff and then conceding. Mm -hmm. But at some point, you know, like yeah. Wiley e. Coyote, they're going to go over the cliff. <laughs> and when they do that, and the federal government finds itself unable legally to pay its obligations, I don't know where this goes. And, um, you know, it is it is folly beyond imagination to repeat yeah. that phrase. And yet it is now become consistent folly. It's become persistent folly. It's become almost annual folly. The debt ceiling yeah. expires again in 2025. You tell me how, how it will be extended and what hostages will be taken by the Republicans if they control uh, any of the branches of government, much less if they control all three. I, I, really, uh, I really think we're, we are uh, approaching a fiscal cliff here. Um, ben Bernanke, when he was chairman of the Federal Reserve, described the expiration of the George W. Bush tax cuts as a fiscal cliff in 2010. And then there was another fiscal cliff of the same sort at the end of 2012. And there's another one in 2025. But the debt ceiling uh, story really does create a, a cliff of a very different magnitude and one that's much more dangerous, I think, to the American public than anyone uh, has really focused on. It's, I, I feel like you say folly beyond imagination. I feel like someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene lacks the imagination to know what this really means. And I, I think of the scene in Modern Times, the Charlie Chaplin movie, where he's roller skating backwards closer and closer to the hole that he doesn't realize is there, um, you know, and that we're, maybe we're at that point. Uh, and yet things can turn around very quickly. You know, all it takes is some event that galvanizes us and brings us together, whether it's, you know, it, it could be anything. Uh, and suddenly we're back on the same page and we kind of realize it. And maybe that's what the event would have to be is, is falling off the cliff. I mean, in Louis, the, the, what the 16th didn't want to, he could either repudiate the debt or he could raise taxes on the rich people and the clergy. And he chose to repudiate the debt and, um, spoiler alert, it did not end well for him. <laughs> so we don't want to make that mistake. I think. <laughs> no, I think that's right. Um, but you know, we've had a couple of chances to come together. We had the great financial crisis and the recession. Um, and uh, the fact that uh, the Tea Party uh, rose up and, and, and once again, uh, with a lot of racist imagery, it wasn't just a racist movement, but had a lot of, you know, I think it was not a coincidence that the first African-American was president at the time of the Tea Party, and that didn't bring us together. And we had a pandemic um, that was unprecedented in our lifetimes, and that hasn't brought us together. So, um Maybe it's just beyond my imagination, and I'm certainly prepared to agree with you that Marjorie Taylor Greene may have a limited imagination. So I'm not disagreeing with you, but I'm not sure how this how this ends. I'm not either. Um, 
So before I let you go, I have one more question that, that isn't about the book and, and the taxes, but you, you've also written about the Supreme Court, and uh, the Supreme Court seems very, very messed up, about as messed up as the, as the, the, the fiscal situation right now. I, what, what's your take on it as somebody who's really looked at it and studied it, and you have these clearly very corrupt people there, Thomas and, and, and Alito and these guys that are just hanging out with the billionaires, and, and, uh, and yet- they're they're in control and there seems like not much that we can do about it. I mean, wh- what's your take on it and what do you think we can do? Well, you know, that's a really complicated question. We could probably spend another hour talking <laughs> about that. Um, you know, Alito is a true believer. Alito is is not uh, I, I don't see any signs of corruption in this in the sense that Thomas has has taken advantage of, of financial uh, benefits from other people as ProPublica has revealed uh, and has refused to disclose them and, and, and so forth. Um, I think he's gotten himself in some financial difficulties. You know, Abe Fortas got himself in some financial difficulties and was thrown off the court, uh, but nobody seems willing to do that with Clarence uh, Thomas or even to require him to, to be forthcoming about his taxes or, or his uh, financial arrangements. Um, The movement of the, Supreme Court to the right has been a goal of the of a certain segment of the Republican right for a very long time. Uh, and as you mentioned at the beginning, the book that Linda Greenhouse and I wrote on the Burger Court is described as, as the Burger Court and the Rise of the Judicial Right. That's the title. And it was the beginning of that. Uh, the Burger Court I think was underestimated for its movement to the right. It was a very pro-business court. It was a court that really blessed money in politics. And we, we hear people saying that Citizens United was the decision that caused all the problems, but that's not the case. It goes back further than that. Um, and we make the case with the Burger Court really being an important transitional court. Um, and Mitch McConnell um, made it his life work in his later years to uh, block liberals or even moderates. I mean, it's hard to describe Merrick Garland as liberal. Um, yeah. To block uh, moderates from the court and to, and to create a, a long majority of, of very conservative people. Um, and that's where we are. And, yeah. and that's, I think, where we're going to be for, for some time. Uh, the idea is that somebody is going to increase the size of the court, which Congress could do, uh, but seems to me unlikely. Um, Many of these people that were appointed are very young and have a long uh, period in front of them. Um, It it does seem to me that that life tenure for somebody that you put on the court at age 40 or 50 is really much too long and that there ought to be some term, term limits for the Supreme Court. Um, They could be long, but not 40 years or 50 years. Uh, You know, um, I I was very close uh, to the Ginsburg family. Uh, Marty Ginsburg uh, was a tax lawyer and a tax professor at Georgetown and a very good friend friend of mine and and Ruth's husband from from the beginning. Uh, And, and, you know, she had an opportunity to uh, step down and, and didn't. And so, you know, there are lots of, of, of moments when, when history takes turns that are not predictable. 
Justice Breyer, who I also know well, uh, did step down and, and was succeeded by uh, Justice Jackson, uh, who uh, uh, was the first African-American woman appointed to the court by Joe Biden. Um, so I think the court is going to be conservative, and that means that there are going to be pressures on American democracy at a time when American democracy is not well suited to answering the call. And so that, I think, is, is where we are and where we're going to be with the court for a while. And I will say that the response of the people when they've had opportunities to vote directly on abortion referendums has been uh, somewhat reassuring, even in, yeah. even in conservative states. And, uh, and so, so we'll see. Um, I think the worst thing the court has done during this period, and I think this is the, this is really comes back in some sense, full circle to the anti-tax movement book, is uh, to treat money as the equivalent of speech in politics. And what that does is it gives an outsized voice in American politics, particularly legislative politics, uh, Ian Shapiro and I write about this a good bit in our Wolf at the Door book um, and in our state tax book. Give people with money outsized voice in the legislative process. And uh, there are uh, political scientists around the country who have, who have basically said that if you look at legislative output, it favors the people at the top and the people at the bottom and the middle don't really have uh, anywhere near as much a say in it. And that, I think, is due to money and politics and the really corrupting power of, of money. And, and that is where the Supreme Court, I think, took a turn that makes it difficult for democracy, as we like to think of it, as a, a nation for the people, by the people, and of the people, to, uh, to reassert itself. And that, I think, is the, is the big, big problem going forward much bigger in my mind than uh, Clarence Thomas's vacations or his RV. Uh, so that's, that's my take on it. <laughs> Thank you for that. As, especially since it's probably a surprise question. Um, the, but the Clarence Thomas's RV maybe means Clarence Thomas can get in the RV and drive off into the sunset and we can replace him with somebody who isn't, you know, a reactionary, uh, would would be nice. Um, so I, I st I've got a, a a whole lot of questions left, but that's okay because it's really going through the book, and I want people to go read the book uh, because it's excellent. And it's also, you know, I've talked a lot on this show, and I've written a lot about this too, like the, the, the especially from the court side and Leonard Leo and uh, the rise of the right in power. And I think your book is a way of looking at that that I hadn't considered before, and I think a lot of people just don't think about. Taxes just seem like Benjamin Franklin, you know, death and taxes and inevitability. Uh, but it's really not. And there's lots of different ways to think about it. And there's a it, it is a very interesting history, uh, peopled with very interesting characters, as you say, uh, and well worth uh, delving into. So, again, the book is called The Power to Destroy, How the Anti-Tax Movement Hijacked America. Um, I'm not going to reveal, uh, it, I'm not going to say where the title comes. It's revealed in a very cool place and I don't want to ruin it. I don't want to spoil it for people, but I liked what you did with, with where you put it in the book. So, uh, I wish you good luck with it. And, uh, Michael Gratz, thanks so much for joining me today. No, thanks, Greg. I appreciate it.
all of your enthusiasm and support for the book and, and for uh, our conversation, which has certainly been a, a, an interesting one. So uh, thank you so much for having me. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fossett. Serena Zabriskie, Marie Cast, and Martha Akuna provided the introduction in Ukrainian, French, and Spanish, respectively. Voice talent is by Stephanie St. John and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hockey, Kanai Williams, Kimberly Johnson, and everyone else at MSW Media. If you'd like to support this program, get three friends to subscribe. The more downloads I get, the better the show does. You can also subscribe to The 5-8, the live YouTube show I do with my friend Stephanie Koff, a.k.a. LB. Tune in tonight for your Friday night hang. Most importantly, please subscribe to the Prevail Substack with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $6 monthly or $55 yearly subscription funds my work on the column and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Be kind to each other. Try and enjoy yourself. And until next time, we shall prevail. M-S-W-Media.